We're back in First Peter. You know, one of the challenges of going through a book like this, verse by verse, is that you can't pick your topics. You have to teach what's there. And that's uh, exciting in some ways, intimidating in some ways, but it's how the Lord wants us to learn sometimes. Uh, sometimes we'll just take a topic and develop it and, and look at some passages. Other times we need to walk through the Bible systematically. It's a good thing to do. And we're going through the book of First Peter this summer and just walking through it verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph. And that causes us, and this is a good thing, to, to really see everything that's here, to not glide over anything, to not miss any verses because they're tough or we don't like them or they, we don't think they apply. We're going to go through verse by verse. And that is, is a good thing because the Bible says that we should study the whole counsel of God, that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable to us. And isn't it interesting how the Lord brings us themes in our education and in our growth that are always perfect for what's going on in the moment. Have you discovered that in your study? That, that times when you're studying and you go, this is exactly what I needed today and I didn't think I would, or maybe I didn't really want to face what's going on, but, but this passage is, is perfect. And I know that's true. I've seen it be true so many times in my own life and in, in my ministry, but um, especially over the last four or five weeks as we've gone through First Peter and and I really felt the Lord leading us to this book. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever taught through this book before. But I really felt the Lord leading us to this book this summer. And um, I think it's really been applicable. As I've looked back over every year of our church's history, and that's short. Um, this is our, is our uh, what, third summer, I guess. Um, that every year that we have prepared for family camp, right before, there's been a heavy attack. And really over the last four to five to six weeks... There's been a heavy attack on families, there's been a heavy attack on marriages, uh, and there's been a heavy attack on the church family. And about a month ago, um, as I was preparing for family camp and seeking the Lord of, of what to teach then, he, he gave me the topics that we're going to be studying this week, and they're going to kind of parallel what we're doing this morning. And I'm hoping we can uh, tape those so you can study along with us maybe as we're, as we're learning out in Iowa, because... Um, what we're seeing this morning, what we're going to study this week at camp is, is very parallel and it's very foundational uh, to what we're doing. So as we've gone through this book, we've given this book the title of Become or Becoming. Uh, and last week, uh, well, actually the overall theme is that we're becoming more mature as disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to stay in the same place. There is a need for progression in the Christian walk and the need to move on to maturity, as Scripture says. So we've been studying those themes, and, and the essential question kind of that, that Peter is answering in this book is, how do we live as a Christian in the world? As we see the world being carnal, as we see the world drifting uh, ever more rapidly away from Jesus Christ, as we see the rise of other religions, as we see pluralism, as we see all the things that are going on, how do we maintain the integrity of our walk and not only stay steady as Christians, but mature and have influence? So what Peter is really answering here to these believers that are scattered out throughout what is now modern-day Turkey is how can you be influential when culture's against you, you're facing persecution, you don't have a group of people around you that can really steady you, how do you continue to be influential and to grow in the Lord. 
And Peter doesn't conclude that that's done by some kind of greater uh, force of our sheer will or that we just do better at the spiritual disciplines and, and somehow that will get better. What, what is profound about this book is he keeps pointing back at Jesus. In fact, 56 times he refers to Jesus in five chapters, whether it's by name, whether it's by pronoun, whether it's by uh, a name for Jesus that, that doesn't include his name. 56 times in five chapters, 10 per chapter, he talks about Christ. And as we've learned, as we've done the Bible study methods class or done inductive studies, whenever you see that much repetition, there's a theme there that needs to be developed. So just in the first two chapters, as Peter's trying to lay the groundwork for, for how we're supposed to live as believers in our culture, just in the first two chapters alone, he talks about Jesus 37 times. Now that should tell us that everything in our life should center on Jesus. How we think, how we talk, how we act, how we sacrifice, how we trust, how we endure, how we handle suffering, how we love, even how we serve. It all points to Jesus. And he says here, Jesus is our example. He's the one that we are to look at to learn how to do this. If for nothing else than about his humility and about his laying aside of self in order to love and sacrifice for us. So that brings us to chapter 3, which is what we're going to study this morning. Chapter 3, we're just going to do verses, I think, 1 to 9 this morning, even though I've got 12 on the bulletin. Verses 1 to 9. And let's see how he applies this. Now, as we look at this, let's get a little context off of last week in case you weren't here. The passage for this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, is an extension of what came before it. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, and we studied that last week, where Peter talked about becoming a disciple who lives submissively. And remember we talked about how challenging that must have been for Peter because he was very stubborn and strong-willed and proud, and, and it was hard for him to submit to anybody. And initially that had been kind of the conflict as we look at him walking with Jesus. He's always the one that's a little resi uh, resistant or, or a little stubborn or kind of questioning or jumping out and being bold and being about himself. Well, after Jesus went to heaven and he sent the Spirit back down, Peter then becomes a different person. And it starts to take root in him and he starts to understand the need to submit to the Lord that nothing is about him. Nothing is about him. It's all about Jesus. And he needed to learn to submit by looking at Christ, chapter 2, verse 21, who left us this example so we can follow in his steps. Now, one of the ways that we do that, and we didn't really develop that uh, last week, and I want to this morning, if you look back at verses 21 to 25, Peter's just told us how to patiently endure, and, and even when we're treated poorly or we're suffering, as these believers he's writing to were, even when somebody's treating us poorly or we're suffering as a result of our faith, Peter says we're supposed to endure. And the way we stay strong and the way we have influence and the way that we can really live righteously is to look at the example of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of things that Peter could say, look at how Jesus did this. Look at how Jesus had this attitude and, and, and how he, he was careful to be holy and, and he was humble and he was gracious and he was sacrificial. 
instead of all those things. The one thing that Peter highlights in verses 21 to 25 is what Jesus did not say. Of all the things he could highlight about how Jesus handled difficulty and how Jesus handled opposition and how he handled tough situations and how he endured, you, you would think we would... He would talk about his, his surrender and laying aside of his will like Paul does in Acts, uh, Philippians 2. But that's not what Peter talks about. He talks about what Jesus didn't say. Look at the verse, verse 22. It says, there was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't revile in return. And he uttered no threats, but he trusted the Father to judge righteously. Three times, Peter says that Jesus' purity and his discipline and his commitment to the will that he had to redeem us from sin was exemplified in the fact that he did not react verbally to injustice. Now let that just settle in for a minute. Because how many times this week did we feel like we got treated poorly? Or do we feel like there was some kind of injustice or somebody was mean to us or somebody said something critical of us or, or somebody did something that offended us or, 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 or we didn't feel forgiven or whatever the case may be? How did we react? What was our first word out of our mouth? Was it word, a word of goodness and righteousness and holiness or was it a word of anger and frustration and hostility? He says, as Jesus was being abused, as he took our place to go to the cross to suffer for our sin, he didn't say a word in response. He didn't react verbally to the injustice and the pain, even though he was perfectly justified in doing so. And that's vitally important for us to understand in the context of what he teaches next. Look at verse 1. In the same way, continuing the thought of verses 21 to 25, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair or wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We'll stop there, pick up verse 10 next week. Now, notice the first four words of verse 1. In the same way. In other words, following the exact same pattern that Jesus set before us as an example, which was to restrain his mouth and guard his words, even as one who was completely right. 
In the same way, we are to be submissive to each other, quiet in our spirit, and to be loving and gracious and humble to each other. And the proof of how we do that, and we'll study that more in depth in a minute, is by what we say and what we don't say to each other. For us to follow the example of Christ, we have to do this in the same way that he did it. Now, in chapters 1 to 2, we saw the implications of following Christ and submission in relationship to the government, in relationship to our bosses and and those that are in authority over us. But now, Peter says, there's another relationship that we really need to focus on that is going to be more difficult than the first two. And that relationship is our marriage. So here's the instruction to us. Ready? Wives, your beauty should not come from how you look and by what you wear. It should come from the evidence of what is in your inner self and what is precious to the Lord, what has great value to Him, is that your spirit is gentle and quiet. It's how godly women for millenniums have served the Lord and you should not fear living that way. Husbands, men, in the same way, be considerate of your wife. The word there means to be to live with knowledge and understanding of her. And then it says, treat her with respect. This is vital because she is an heir of God's grace with you. And if you don't do it, your prayer will be hindered. Now, our initial reaction to that, and I, and I sensed even a little discomfort as I'm reading this, is that, well, you know, that's not going to play very well in our culture. We can't, we can't really teach this, right? We can't really believe that, that that's the way we're supposed to operate. I mean, times have changed. If, if we teach this, we're going to seem really, really, really irrelevant. I mean, this is, this is old school, Paul. Come on. This, we, we, can't, we can't have these kind of uh, old-fashioned ideals. That type of thinking is the problem with the way the church functions now because we have lowered Scripture to fit our culture rather than saying, Lord, teach us how to do it. We don't care what culture tells us. We don't care even what we feel in our hearts or what we want. Our guide is this book. If this book says it, we do it. If this book doesn't say it, it doesn't matter what culture tells us is important. Now, that's unpopular and that's hard. And the church in many ways has said, we're going to have to adapt a little bit because people aren't going to come to church. And I'm telling you, I read three articles this week that said the reason people aren't coming to church is because the church has said, no, we're not really going to stand by this. Exactly what we said last week. Now, the Lord hasn't called us to adapt to our world. He has called us to be distinctive from the world. And as we saw last week, when we're distinctive from the world, it draws people to him. We are his ambassadors. We're his representatives. He doesn't use angels anymore to communicate his word. He gave us this. He gave us his spirit and he gave us a calling. He said, go be my people and tell people about me and show them how you live. The proof of your words will be in your actions. So if we are going to be a true representation of Christ, people will not be drawn to our similarity to the world people will be turned off by our similarity to the world. And that's what's happened. 
That's being proven now in article after article and study after study that people see that we're not different from the world and they say, what's the point? You're supposed to be a follower of Christ. And as much as I may think you're old-fashioned and irrelevant, I respect your conviction. And you know what? I'm kind of intrigued by it. Now, why don't we do this? I mean, if Jesus tells us this is right, and he gave us an example of it. Why don't we say, good, let's, let's, let's be done. I'm ready. Let, let's do exactly what this says. Well, we don't do it because submission's hard. And there's a lot of pride that needs to be broken. And nowhere is that more true than in marriage. Now, here the instruction seems a little extra challenging. Peter's saying that even if the husband is unsaved, look at verses 1 and 2, or even if the husband's disobedient to the Lord, that the wife is still supposed to submit. Now, The world, and even some in the Christian world, will say, no way. Forget it. You just need to to divorce him. If he's going to be mean to you and he's not going to follow the Lord, then you need to get rid of him. The problem is the Bible only allows two clear grounds for divorce biblically. We're not going to get into this. I just want to say this. There are only two biblical grounds for divorce. Sexual immorality and adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. There's no variation. There's no extras. That's it. And the Lord gives incredible grace even in the worst of situations. I've seen marriages that that were just broken to the point where you go, there's no way God's going to fix that. And, And God has rescued it and resolved it and brought those people to harmony. God can do that. So the answer here is not to say... Well, well, my spouse or my husband, wives, isn't following the Lord, so I'm just going to walk away. No, we are to stay into it. And he says here, you're to continue to submit. Now, what does this highlight? This highlights the fact that believers should not marry unbelievers. We're not to intentionally yoke ourselves to someone who doesn't love the Lord. So teenagers, if you're in this room, if you are dating somebody that isn't saved and you are, there's no missions dating. There's no missions dating. You don't have the same eternal values that is going to lead you to poor decisions. It's going to lead you to a future that God will not bless. Only date and marry someone who is like-minded about the Lord. Now, what if I marry somebody and we were both unsaved and then I got saved and my husband doesn't have a relationship with the Lord that he said he did? And what if he's rude and inconsiderate and hostile? The Bible says, this is not my words because I would have a hard time saying this. The Bible says, submit to him. In fact, it says, if you are speaking the word to him and that hasn't brought him to faith, you should stay and submit and he will be one without you saying a word by your holy and sacrificial behavior. Now, that doesn't sound very compatible with what the world would tell us, right? That sounds like women are doormats. That sounds like the Bible is saying that women should get run all over. But listen, this is not about the woman being less than. It's about having a quiet spirit that has a profound effect on the heart and mind of another person. And the Bible says here, just through her quiet and humble witness, just through her reverent behavior to the Lord and her submission to her husband, a woman may win her husband without words. Now, that doesn't mean the truth shouldn't come out because faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? Tell me. The word of God, right? You've got to learn that verse. I'm going to ask you again in a couple of weeks. 
Faith comes by hearing. Say it now. Hearing comes by what? The Word of God. So we have to speak the truth. We have to say in love, here's the gospel. You need to turn to Christ. And we need to keep repeating that message. But if somebody at some point says, I don't want to do that, then we can win them through quiet behavior, through praying and being quiet in our spirit and through a silent witness. Not to mention the fact that it will totally, totally freak out the husband. Right? I mean, it's proven. Women say twice as many, I think it is, words than a man in a day. So if you start to be quiet and and humble and just sacrificial and prayerful, the husband's initially going to be suspicious and then he's going to be scared. Going to wonder what in the world's going on. But look at what the text says. Through chaste and holy behavior, through this quiet spirit, through being respectful, you can win him. It's so counterculture to what women are being told. But in this particular situation, the woman's inner beauty is so tremendously powerful and influential. Look at what the Spirit calls it here. It's in verse... uh, see if I can find it here. It's in verse 4. The Spirit calls it the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And He says, this is what is precious to me. How many women this morning want to be precious to the Lord? How many of us as believers want to be precious to the Lord? We are all told here how to live. Listen, we're all the bride of Christ. So by extension, there's a spiritual application to every single one of us as the bride of Christ that we are to be submissive and quiet in our spirit and gentle. And the Bible says, when you do that, It is so valuable and so precious to me. And God says, that's what I'm thrilled about. Not that you're fighting me. Not that you won't trust. Not that you're argumentative. Not that you think you know better. Not not that you're hostile. Not that you're upset because I'm allowing a trial. No, I don't want that. That's not precious to me. That's not an imperishable quality. I'll tell you what's an imperishable quality, church. I'll tell you what's an imperishable quality, women. It's to be quiet and gentle, and to trust me, and to submit to me. Oh, I love that. I love that. Now, one look at the magazines at the checkout of the grocery store will tell you this is not what women are being told. What are the values being pushed on women? Sensuality, immorality, surface beauty, unfair comparisons. We'll look at her, and then look at her. I love the tabloids where they're like, Stars without makeup or, or worse bodies or plastic surgery gone wrong. You're kind of like, like, I can't look at that. That's horrible. That's done to demean and to say, here's the ideal. Oh, look at that magazine, what the woman sprawled across with half her clothes on. That's the ideal, women, teenagers. That's, that's what you should be. That's not what the Bible says. I don't care what the world wants. I only care what the Bible says. And the Bible, look at verses 3 and 4, says that true beauty is not braided hair or designer clothes or makeup or jewelry. That doesn't mean women can't wear them. This is not a prohibition of those things. It is to say, don't let that define your beauty. Listen, hair and clothing styles go away. Aren't we glad? We're looking at you, 70s. Aren't we glad the 70s are done, right? Oh, my goodness, I can't believe how my parents dressed me. 
And I looked like everybody else. Isn't that sad? Oh, but back then, that was cool, right? And then the 80s, everybody's clothes were torn and the hair was all over the place. And then the 90s, everybody was into grunge. And then in this decade, last decade, I have no idea what people were doing. I Just immodesty. Hair and clothing and styles change. But we're so conditioned to look at the outward for our cues of what's important. The Bible says God doesn't care about the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And he wants the unfading beauty of the heart. Ladies, let me ask you a hard question. Are you spending more time beautifying your character than you are trying to look nice on the outside? If you're beautifying your character, it's shown in a meek, gentle, and quiet spirit. What's precious to the Lord is a woman that's beautiful in her spirit. And listen, culture says men don't care about that. And you know what? Most men don't. Most men just look at the body. And teenagers, let me say this to you again. Don't ever date a guy that only wants to look at your body. Don't ever date a guy that only wants to look at your body. He doesn't respect you, and he isn't valuing you as the Lord does. Be a woman who has the imperishable quality that men need. Listen, there are a lot of beautiful women that are unattractive on the inside, but there is nothing like a woman who is wholehearted for the Lord. Oh, the beauty there of their character and their spirit is so important. And you know what? That radiates beyond any makeup. That just radiates out of a person's heart. And you see it and you say, there's something about her. Ladies, do you know what's going to prevent you from doing this? Look at the end of verse... Oh, I can't see this morning. Look at the end of verse 6. Here's what's going to prevent you from doing this. Fear. Fear. The Spirit says, do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's a double emphasis. Why? Because fear, I have learned over 27 years of ministry, fear is the most common temptation for women. Fear. Why does the Spirit say, do this, be submissive and quiet and humble without fear of what's going to happen? Because He knows that women will be fearful that they're not going to be treated well. And he says, if you are walking with the Lord, I promise you will be treated well. You trust me that this is right, and you have a quiet, humble spirit. Make that the priority in your relationships, and I will take care of it. And then he talks to us, men, just in case we're not sitting there smugly thinking, oh, yeah, it's about time somebody told the women to be quiet. (laughs) Well, men... He's telling us to. Look at verse 7. You husbands, men, tell me the next four words out loud. In the same way. That's right. It's the exact same phrase used in verse 1. Wives, in the same way as Christ did it, you do it. Now, men, you husbands, in the same way as Christ did it, and in the same way as the women are doing it. In the same way, you are to live this way. Just because we have six less verses doesn't mean it's any easier. In the same way, which means that any thought that we have that finally Rhodes said that my wife should submit 
and I get to treat her however I want. He said that from the pulpit this morning. I get to do that now. Uh Uh-uh, you don't. I didn't say that. You can listen to the tape. In the same way, it doesn't mean she submits, she's your patsy, you treat her however you want, you treat her like garbage. No, that's not what the Bible says. In Ephesians 5.21, it says, submit to one another as unto the Lord. And then it says, husbands love your wives. And then it says, wives submit to your husbands. Let's not get it out of order, men. Submit to the Lord. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then we can worry about her submission. That's up between her and the Lord. Let's do our jobs. And look at our instruction. Verse 7, it says, be understanding. Stop right there. Isn't that what our wives are craving from us? Not blowing them off. Not being disinterested. Not being distracted. Not patronizing them. Okay, honey, rolling our eyes. Come on, this is true, right? (sighs) She's talking again. I'll deal with it later. Yes, I know. I've got to do this. Right? Come on, man. No, no. Be understanding. Be sensitive and gentle and caring and edifying. We are called right here. This is a command of the Lord. First Peter 3, 7. We are called to show the women in our lives knowledge and understanding of who they are and what they need. In other words, don't dominate and don't be a jerk. I remember, and I may have told you the story before, when I was in seminary, one day we got into class and we were talking about this type of passage. And the professor said, listen, I have heard stories with some of you that you have taken your wife home and you have made her get on her knees and apologize to you and say, I will be submissive to you. And he said, you are flat out wrong. And I got chills up my back. I wasn't married at the time. And I thought, Lord, if I ever do that, you strike me. This is not about being dominant. It's not about being in charge. It's not about being the man. It's not being being in control. I'm not saying we're supposed to be wimps. I'm saying we are supposed to be understanding of our wives. Now, here's the, the really dicey part, because Peter says to do this because she's the weaker vessel. Yikes. I don't want to do this section. Can we just go to the next section? What does that mean? Well... By, by physiology, women tend to be weaker, although there are some women that are a lot stronger than me. Emotionally, women tend to bounce around around greater extremes, while men tend to be more in the middle. Some women would call that dull and unfeeling. We won't go there. But here's a new insight I heard last week. She is also weaker because she has agreed to submit. And she has willingly put herself in a vulnerable position that we as men have to be careful not to take advantage of. Now, that doesn't make her lesser than. If anything, it makes her stronger because she has chosen to push aside her will for the sake of the relationship. That's what Jesus did for us. Would we call Jesus weak? 
So she's the weaker vessel because she's taken this position. But that doesn't mean she's less than. Listen, a lot of the women in this church have tremendous gifts that are better than most of us men. They're creative and they're organized and they tackle a lot of tough jobs. We need some men to step up and do some of the things that are required on Sunday morning like teaching and watching kids and cleaning up. And they're often the spiritual ones. They're they're the prayer warriors of the church. Listen, men, we need more men to serve on the prayer band. We need more men to be up front after the service praying with people. We need more men to come to the Saturday prayer times. And we need more men at prayer meeting. We're going to start them back up next week. And if men, if we're going to lead and say, well, we're the head of the house, then you better start with prayer. God's design of the government of marriage is equality. There's headship with the man. But in terms of leadership and control and submission and all that, it is a matter of love. If there is love, there will be gentleness and agreement and contentment. But if there is no love, there is no sacrifice. And if there's no sacrifice, there will be conflict and there will be division. So men, look back at it. Verse 7. We're almost done. We're told, show her honor as a fellow heir of grace. Now, when you read that, ask yourself, if God places so much value on my wife, how can I justify treating her with any less honor and respect than the Lord does? If God loves and values my wife so much and calls her to this difficult position of submission, How can I take advantage of that and how can I treat her poorly? And look at what the scripture says will happen if we do that. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, and this is very scary, it says our prayers will be hindered. Wow. The Lord loves it when we pray. He loves it when we call on his name. He keeps our prayers as bowls, a sweet-selling aroma. He loves it when men pray. But he says to us, I will flat out stop helping you if you treat your wife this way. If you don't treat her like Christ treated the church, if you don't love her like Christ loved the church, then then when you pray, I'm not going to help you. And we need to stop worrying, men, about about whether she fulfills verse 4, and we need to start worrying about the end of verse 7. Should she have a quiet spirit? Yes. But the Lord also says, I'm going to quiet you, even when you call on me, unless you do right by your wives. Yeah, she's supposed to be quiet, but I'll shut you up. Now, what's the overarching spiritual principle in all this? I need to conclude. The application of verses 8 to 9. Let's see how this spiritual principle now relates to our lives and our church and our ministry. Write a couple things down. First of all, we must do a better job of reaching people in addition to giving them the word. Let's apply these principles now to the, to the spiritual realm of ministry. We're called to share the gospel openly and to testify how he's changed our lives. So that's our highest priority. But we also have to be humble and live the life. And that means there should be a gentleness and a submissive reverence to the Lord. And that's not just for the women. We men are supposed to have the same quiet spirit that shows we don't live for ourselves, but we live for him. We need to be persuading people, not just with our words, but with our actions. And that spiritual influence starts in our inner person. 
I don't know about you, but I feel convicted when I think about that because I have not been the husband and not been the pastor and not been the friend that I am supposed to be. And how much more do we need to pray every day, Lord, take away whatever's not beautiful in my spirit and change me so that my actions, through my actions, people will see you. Lord, take away what's not beautiful, what's not pleasing, what's not precious to you. Just remove it because people need to see my life and through my life, they need to see you. And the second thought is there's no way we can say that's happening now. How is the world reacting to believers? How is it reacting to the church? Are, are people repenting more than they ever did? Are they giving their hearts to Christ more than they ever did? Are, are we seeing increased numbers of people walking in holiness? I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about mega churches. I'm not talking about explosion and movements. I'm saying, are more people walking in holiness now than they did 10 years ago? And if they're not, it's because we are not mirroring Christ in the church. The way we act has a profound effect on how people view not just us, but how they view Christ. And if you look back at verse 9, Peter says, Our purpose here, our calling, is to show love for each other. The word is phileo in the Greek. It's, it's, it means family love. We're members of God's family. We should reflect who He is. We have God's spiritual DNA in us. So, so do you know what distinguishes us? Not gifts. Not preaching, not music, not tongues. What distinguishes us is love. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your great preaching. They'll know you're my disciples by by that awesome choir song you did. Or by how you held that. No, they will know you are my disciples by my love. And without that love, no one will even know that you and I are believers. The tree is known for its fruit. And we're called to love each other because the third truth is we're all born into God's family. We're related this morning. If you're a believer this morning, I'm related to you. I know, I'm sorry. We're related. We're family. The joke is that we've said for a couple years, we spend more time together on vacation as a church, and then I do with my own family. This is the family right here. And we're interested in each other, and we care about each other, even though we may not even know each other yet. But, but the hesitation to love each other is what's holding us back even in this body. And maybe you've isolated yourself out of fear or out of pride or, or, or you're causing division or conflict. Listen, that's got to stop. Jesus says, by this you know that you've passed from death to life in that you know each other, you love each other. In other words, love is what says that's a believer. Oh, that person, they must love Christ because they love the way God loves. So, does this apply to us? Absolutely. Look at the last. I've got to give you this last verse and then I'll pray. I promise. Verse 8. Sum it all up. In other words, here's where it applies to us. Talks to wives, talks to husbands, now he talks to the church. He says there are three things. Write these down. I want you to look at them all week. We're going to talk about them at camp. The first word is Harmonious. Live in harmony. It's a musical term. It means to be of the same mind. When the choir sings, when we sing as a congregation, 
if we all sing whatever note we want, which happens once in a while in the choir, let's sing whatever note we want, let's just do what we want. It's not going to sound very good, is it? There's going to be no harmony. So for it to sound beautiful, listen now, we have to not think of ourselves or what we want to do. We have to make adjustments for each other and do what is best for the body, and that will be beautiful. That's exactly what Peter's saying here in verse 8. When relationships have dissonance, you can feel it, especially within a marriage and especially within a church. If no one's willing to give in, it is absolutely awful. How many know that's true? That's not going to work. We won't be effective for Christ. And I don't know about you, but I want to be increasingly effective for Christ. I want to see God work through this church. I want to see God work through our ministry. I want to see God work through our lives. I want to see his gospel advance. And I want to see people come to Christ. Don't you want that? So, so what are you and I doing to be selfless and in harmony? Second, look at it. He says, be sympathetic. That means to feel and care about what matters to the other person. We need to say goodbye to jealousy. We need to say goodbye to territorialism. We need to say goodbye to, to us. And we need to rejoice when the Lord works in other people's lives. We need to stop blaming each other. It's easy to blame everybody else. But we need to honestly ask ourselves, listen now, am I the problem? Am I the problem? Do I have compassion for people? Am I sacrificial? Am I loving? Do I care about my family members? Do I care about my church family? Do I care about the lost? Or am I about myself? Because if we're about ourselves, it's going to be ineffective. Jesus was tender-hearted. He was moved with compassion. The Bible says have bowels of compassion. In other words, feel it in your gut. We need to love each other and be sympathetic to each other. And when somebody's struggling, we need to stop striving and stop thinking about ourselves and love them. And third, and we're done. Look at the last word, kind-hearted. We need to be tender-hearted and humble in spirit. We are called to walk in humility, not in pride. Why? Because pride never reflects Jesus. This church should be a huge HD picture of humility and love. And our gifts and our talents and our service means absolutely zero without love. 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, I may have gifts and speak in tongues and be talented, but if I don't have love, it means nothing. You want a blessing on your life? You want God to work? Then live for the other person in your marriage, with your family, in your church, and in your ministry. Listen, the world does not care about our resume. It is looking for someone to love them with the love of Christ. And when that characterizes our ministry, people will come. They will not come to a church that is driven by division and gossip and meanness. But if they walk in and they see people's lives that are changed and they see people ministering to each other and loving each other and proclaiming God's goodness openly and calling on the Lord and studying his word and they see genuine love, they're not going to remember what songs we sing or what I preached. They're going to say to themselves, that church is loving. That church reflects Jesus Christ.
And God says, when we do that, verse 9, we will inherit his blessing. Don't you want the blessing of the Lord on your life this morning? Don't you want that as a church? I mean, we can keep going and doing our thing and week to week and getting by. Or we can say, Lord, we want you to put your hand of blessing on this place. And we want you to use us. And we want you to work through us to reach people for Christ and help them develop in maturity. Lord, put your hand of blessing. And God says, I will. But you got to do this. I won't bless you until you do that. But when you do that, I will. So may he help us to do that. Let's stand together. Let's close our service and let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for this word. It's a challenging word. It's a difficult word. It goes right to the core of something every single person in this room struggles with. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know our minds. You know our actions. You know our words. We ask you this morning to gently confront us. To challenge us in the areas in which we have not been submissive to you and we have not been submissive and loving to each other. Lord, for the wives this morning, for the women, I pray that you would help them in what you have called them to do. To have a quiet, gentle spirit that reflects the purity of their heart before you. That people would be one, even just by their actions. Lord, what a challenge that will be for all the women. And Lord, what a challenge it will be for us men to love and to sacrifice and to be understanding. Lord, that's just as difficult for us. So you're going to need to help us. And we ask you, Lord, this morning, help us, please. Help us in our marriages. Help us in our families. Help us in our church body. Help us in our ministry. Help us this week at Village Creek, Lord. Help us to live the way you have called us to live. And Lord, when we do this, you promise you will bless us. And Lord, we want that this morning. We want your blessing upon our lives. So Lord, minister to us this week. I pray as we go to camp, bless the teaching that you're going to bring to us in our time of worship and fellowship. Lord, for our congregation back here in Racine, we pray you would keep your hand on them. And Lord, that we would rejoice together next Sunday as we gather together as a church body, that we would be loving and faithful to each other and that you would get all the glory. Lord, it's about you. We want to give you glory with how we live. We thank you and praise you for what you've already done and what you're going to do. We ask you now to guide and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said together, Amen.